brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Here we go again, Higher Side Chatters, bringing the heat, getting into the meat, and charting another course across the vast conspiracy from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood. And in this modern era, it seems that the oily appendages of the nefarious few are tightly wound around every sad and backward sector of our society. And while we wave the flag of freedom, we have systematically slipped into an Orwellian nightmare surveillance state. Being processed like cattle at every major gathering, being poked and prodded and scanned just to get on a routine flight, and cheering on the arrival of facial recognition technology and cameras on every street corner. And that's just at home. Never mind the perpetual war cycle, the harvesting of our community chests for the endless costs of the military-industrial complex, and the countless loss of life that is stacked up in the wake of their never-ending operations. It's a sad situation that can clearly be rolled back to the true catalyst in 2001, the tragic events of 9-11, where the sinister psychopaths of the power pyramid put in motion a covert operation to craft the world they wanted carried out their false flag attack, and have been feeding off the trauma they created ever since. We know the official story is full of holes, falling apart under even the most mildly critical eye, but many unanswered questions still remain. Or that is to say they did until the recent release of The Trigger, David Icke's 800-plus page book breaking down the entire event and the death cult network behind it, with a level of detail and clarity I have found nowhere else. You can get a copy of The Trigger or any of his fascinating books and video presentations on his website, davidike.com. And lucky for us, he's back in the higher side saddle and ready to ride. So let's get into it. You know him, you love him. A true conspiracy culture staple and the waker of masses. Bend the knee for the renegade himself, David, the dot connector, Ike. Welcome back to THC. Oh, thanks, Greg. What a great introduction. <laughs> I try. Thank you. And I appreciate you coming back so soon. You are a man of your word, and you are not kidding about the level of detail in The Trigger. Definitely one of the biggest books I have now. Honestly, given all the epic level work you've done at this point, I wondered if we really needed another 9-11 book in 2019. Obviously, the people hanging out here are well aware that the official story is a big lie, but where The Trigger really shines for me 
is with the questions of who really did it and why. Because I haven't heard of anyone framing up this network and its origin the way you do in this book. Well, the book is two books. The first half of the book demolishes the official story of 9-11 from the perspective of taking each aspect of it and taking it apart, which basically leaves no aspect that stands up. But the second half of the book, as you say, tells an amazing story, picking it up in the 17th century and bringing it through to who actually did it and why. And of course, part of that section details the scale of censorship that is going on worldwide, particularly in the West, um, to stop this death cult, which is what it is, being revealed. And I'm sure we'll get into that as we go along, what that censorship is and, and why it's being done and how it's being done, because uh, the United States is absolutely controlled in terms of the Washington uh, establishment by this death cult. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Obvious, yes. And you can clearly see how the agenda that has rolled out since 9-11, it can all be brought back to, as you say, the trigger. And a lot of people speculate on who's to blame. Some say Saudi Arabia, some say Israel. And it turns out that, you know, as far as your work has shown, these are just two heads of the same snake, a snake that might have many heads. Well, it, it does. And you can start to see why there was such a Saudi Arabian input into 9-11 in terms of the alleged, alleged hijackers. Most of them were Saudi Arabian. There have been uh, efforts, of course, to take on Saudi Arabia and their involvement through the courts. But unless you connect the dots, you can miss the real target. What I do in uh, the trigger is pick up this death cult in the 17th century and a man called Sabatai Zevi. Sabatai Zevi was a Sephardic Jewish man who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. Now, what happens when you say something like that is, you're anti-Semitic, you are. That's, that's the defense mechanism, which we'll get into. Actually, the opposite is the case in terms of Zevi, because he started a cult um, which became known as Sabbateans and Sabbateanism, which actually is the very inversion of mainstream Judaism. Um, this uh, Sabbatean cult, at one point, and by the way, everything I'm going to say in relation to this Zevi and the cult comes from Jewish sources, because there are people in the Jewish community who absolutely know this is true. Not enough, but they absolutely know this is true. And so you have this Zevi cult, which inverted everything. So, for instance, if in Judaism a particular day was a fast day, then in Sabbateanism, it would be a feast day. Mm. Now, you may not think that that's too much of a problem on that level, and it's not. But once you get into this whole inversion cult, then lots of other things far more serious start to come up. For instance, if it is a taboo for sex with children, and it's a taboo to have um, incest with children within families, then under Sabbateanism, it is not only not a taboo, it is encouraged. It's part of their culture. 
And what happened with Zevi, he was operating in the Ottoman Empire, and he was in what is called Turkey uh, today, the state of Turkey. And the height of this cult, uh, this is again, according to Jewish sources, he had about a million followers. Now, just, you know, take that on. That's a million followers in the 1600s. Hmm. Eventually, the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire said to Zevi, look, either you convert to Islam or you ain't going to be around for very long. So he decided to convert to Islam and many of his followers did as well. But convert to Islam only on the surface because they continued to practice their Sabbateanism, their inversion of Judaism in secret. And these people that converted, these Sabbateans that converted on the surface, became known as Donma or Donme, which means to turn, to convert in other words. And this stream operates within Islam to this day. And one major aspect of this stream of Sabbatean cultists who are practicing their cult, their basically satanic cult within Islam, is better known today as the Saudi royal family. The British Empire that put the Saudi House of Saud into power because they wanted to hijack the centers of Islamic religion in uh, Mecca and Medina, they worked with the House of Saud, which eventually controlled that whole area. But they also introduced to the House of Saud a man called Wahhabi. He was a Sabbatean from Wahhabi, whose daughter married into the Saudi royal family. We get Wahhabism, which is this extreme version of Islam, which is practiced and imposed where? In Saudi Arabia. This is the head chopping, hand chopping version of Islam, which manifests as ISIS Islamic State, which is funded by who? The House of Saud, among others, mm -hmm. including the United States. And so another step, the next step, in this Sabbatean cult, the next major step was the arrival in the 18th century of a man called Jacob Frank. Jacob Frank claimed to be the reincarnation of Sabbatai Zevi and also the reincarnation of the biblical patriarch Jacob. And what happened then, and this is again from Jewish sources, is he took Sabbateanism into still greater depths, both of depravity and of expansion. Because one of the things that Frank started to do was to convert Sabbateans from this time on, they were known as Sabbatean Frankists, as they are to this day, convert them to Roman Catholicism and Christianity. So they took over the, the Vatican, etc. And this is the modus operandi of Sabbatean Frankists. They infiltrate communities, they infiltrate religions, claiming and outwardly behaving as if they're one of that community and one of that religion while um, advancing and using that religion community as a means to advance the Sabbatean Frankist agenda, which is total global control. And Jacob Frank got together with a guy called Mayer Amstel Rothschild, 
the founder of the Rothschild dynasty. Mm-hmm. The Rothschilds were called Bauer until Mayor Amstel Rothschild came in, or Mayor Amstel Bauer, as he was. And he changed the name to Rothschild, and it was named after a sign or a symbol on their house in Frankfurt. The symbol was the Star of David. And Rothschild in German actually means red shield or red sign. So that's where the very name comes from. And that symbol from which Rothschild comes is, of course, on the flag of Israel, which is the fiefdom of the Rothschilds. And the fiefdom, in terms of its controlling elite, of this Sabbatean Frankist cult, because it was this death cult that was behind the creation of Israel. And what they've done is seize control through this infiltration of the Jewish community, while the vast majority of Jewish people have no idea who these people are. And they have been persuaded to go in a certain direction when actually it's not for the reasons that they're being told. It's not to fulfill biblical prophecy or any of that. It's to advance this cult. And this is why the Rothschilds were absolutely central, totally central to the creation of Israel. For instance, in the latter part of the 19th century, a secret society was created in Britain called the Round Table. And its first head was Cecil Rhodes, who plundered Southern Africa for the Rothschilds with the the gold and the, uh, the diamonds. And the Round Table Secret Society was funded by the Rothschilds. And in the time of the First World War, we had the, the Balfour Declaration. This was the British Foreign Secretary, Lord Balfour, declaring, and, you know, the Balfour Declaration, it would seem that he stood up in Parliament or something and declared that the British Empire supported a homeland for Jewish people in Palestine. But actually, the Balfour Declaration was a letter. And it was a letter sent by Lord Balfour to Lord Rothschild um, saying that the British Empire supported this homeland for Jewish people in Palestine. That's what history tells you. What history doesn't tell you is that Lord Balfour, the British Foreign Secretary, was an inner circle member of this Roundtable Secret Society. And the Roundtable Secret Society was funded by the Rothschilds. And so it goes on and goes on until Israel was created. Now, the vast majority of people in Israel think that Israel and why it was created was about fulfilling biblical prophecy, like I say, but it wasn't. It was to be a point, the central point of control by this Sabbatean Frankist cult. And going on to what I said earlier, this is why you would think that Israel, the Israeli government kind of representing Judaism, and the Saudi royal family representing Islam would actually be in great conflict. But they haven't been. Under the surface, they have been working as one unit. And this has become more obvious with the arrival of this new crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, who basically runs Saudi Arabia now, the guy behind the 
horrific killing of Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi dissident journalist. And so this is why they've been so close when you think they wouldn't be. And then I show in the book how in a, in a chapter called Atlantic Crossing, how this cult moved in on America. And this cult hides behind the network, the massive network in America, uh, Zionist organizations and ultra-Zionist organizations, which fund American politics to the most extraordinary extent. To give people an idea of how few people we're looking at at the core, the Jewish population of the world is only 0.2% of the human population. Depending how you define what a Jewish person is, because there are different definitions, the number is around 16 million in a world population of 7.7 billion. And the people in this cult are a tiny fraction of those numbers. And through compartmentalization, walling off knowledge and keeping people further down the hierarchy, only having the knowledge they need to make their contribution in ignorance of what they're contributing to ultimately, it takes a very few people to run this. So if you then go into the story of 9-11, both before, during and after, as I have in the trigger, you find that the ultra-Zionist Mossad Israeli military, Israeli military intelligence involvement in 9-11 was absolutely central, far more central than the CIA, which is also controlled in its inner core by this same death cult. The chapters in the second half of the book towards the end, which are just a coincidence, question mark, and then just a coincidence two and just a coincidence three, are devastating. There's no way you can read those chapters and dismiss the idea that the Israel and hierarchy, intelligence and military and political, were not absolutely central to what happened on September the 11th, 2001. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, you make a really ironclad case, and that is a great lane of the base that these ideas came from. And it is just odd because ancient religions and backward spiritual ideas always seem to be at the heart of things. And I'm just driven nuts by like what really drives these ideas. There must be real power there. They wouldn't be so dedicated to it because you'd expect billionaires to just say, well, I'm good. I don't need your weird religion. Like I'm, I'm past all that. But it seems so central to everything that drives them. Well, the death cult is driven by the belief in basically what Satanists believe in, but they hide that within the Judaistic religion or secular Zionism. Much of what we call the Jewish community and, and Judaism are actually just the the screen they hide behind. You know, it's like you've got the Satanists in the Western con- countries people like the British royal family, for instance, who outwardly are believers in Christianity. So, you know, they're always kind of going to church and all that. Well, in public they are. But actually behind the scenes, they don't follow Christianity at all. They follow something very different, uh, Sabbatean Frankism or its equivalent. And so you've got this infiltration. But what, what happens, as I mentioned earlier, is that this Sabbatean Frankist death cult has set up out of Israel 
a phenomenal global web, particularly in the West, of organizations. You have perhaps the best known one in the United States, the Anti-Defamation League, which are there to target anyone that is in any way, shape or form, even mildly, getting close to uncovering what's happening out of Israel. And they are they use the term anti-Semite. They've just introduced, and this is ultimately the death cult that's behind this, they've introduced in the last few years a new definition of anti-Semitism, which is massively expanded from what it should be, which is discrimination against Jewish people for being Jewish people. That should be what it's defined as. In fact, anti-Semitism itself is a complete misnomer because Semite, Semitism, refers to a group of languages in the Middle East, the overwhelming vast, vast, vast majority of which are Arabic languages. So anti-Semitism is in fact saying anti-Arab. This is how the inversion goes into even uh, those levels of deceit. But what this new definition does is expand the definition of anti-Semitism to include criticism of Israel. In fact, it's so expanded now, Greg, that if you talk of a global conspiracy without mentioning Jewish people in any way, shape or form or Zionism in any way, shape or form, you are called an anti-Semite because they say that the idea that there's a global conspiracy is an anti-Semitic trope. And therefore, though you're not mentioning Jewish people, you're anti-Semitic because you're indicating that that's what you're talking about. I mentioned in the book uh, a researcher into 9-11 who quite soon after 9-11 just mentioned in an article that many witnesses were saying they heard explosions in the buildings before they fell. He was attacked by the Anti-Defamation League. Well, he wasn't saying that there was a Jewish involvement in 9-11 in terms of what he was saying in that article. He was just saying that witnesses, which is absolutely true, say they heard explosions. And yet the Anti-Defamation League that's supposed to be there to protect Jewish people from discrimination were in there on his case. Now, this makes no sense, but it does if you know about the death cult and, and how it works. One of the amazing things that I detail in the book is the scale of ultra-Zionist funding of American politics, both parties. It's just extraordinary. And this is why someone like Netanyahu turns up at Capitol Hill the House of Representatives or the, you know, both houses are actually on their feet like every two minutes giving a, a standing ovation. Mm -hmm. It's because they are owned by Israel. Trump is owned by Israel. That's why uh, from the moment he was elected, uh, Netanyahu started this process of building more and more Jewish only, by the way, settlements on the Palestinian illegally occupied land because he knew there was going to be no pushback from the American president. And this is why the American embassy was moved by Trump from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which has a massive implications, uh, not least uh, for the Palestinians. And this death cult, as I point out in the book, has had the ambition all along to remove the big mosque on what Jews and Christians call Temple Mount in Jerusalem and replace it with a rebuilt Solomon's Temple because Solomon is in their 
death cult mythology, a black magician and like a godlike figure to this cult. And this moving of the embassy into Jerusalem is a step towards the rebuilding of Solomon's temple. And this is why Israeli government is systematically moving Palestinians out of the area where that mosque is in in Jerusalem. It's all part of this process. And now we've reached the point, I've been saying this for so long that this was the goal. Now we're seeing the point where those extremists that go public in the Jewish community in Jerusalem are saying, that's what we want. We want Solomon's temple back. And, And that's what it's all moving towards. And so you've got this network that moved in on America, controls American politics through its funding and other sources of manipulation, that long ago infiltrated the National Security Agency, the Pentagon, and the CIA, etc., and the institutions of government. And they had, in the run-up to 9-11, control of every area, as I show in the book, that they needed to control to carry it out and then to cover it up. Hmm. Yes, yes. The level of detail is staggering. And it does seem like this is a metaphysical or spiritual conquest as much as it is anything. Inversion and infiltration are clearly effective tools to keep the target moving and the researchers guessing. And so Jacob Frank died in 1791. Obviously, we have to fast forward quite a bit to get up to 9-11, 2001. But where do we see the tentacles of the death cult in the Bush administration, in the strategizing and planning of 9-11 itself? Are there particular people we can put in this club? Well, let me give you a sequence. This won't be short, but it will be fascinating and devastating if if people have not heard it before, and most people will not have done. Sure. You can take this back a, a long time, but let's pick up the sequence in 1979. In 1979, a guy called Issa Harel, who was known as the father of Israeli intelligence, gave an interview to a American journalist and predicted that Arab terrorists were going to attack New York's biggest building. In the same uh, 1979, Benjamin Netanyahu began to organize international terrorism conferences. First one was in Jerusalem in 1979. The second one was in the United States in 1984, in which he was calling for a war on terror and for preemptive strikes on terror states, as he called them. And he put all this in a book called War on Terrorism or Terrorism, How the West Can Win. And then in 1996, when Netanyahu was prime minister of Israel, he ordered a study, a report, headed by a guy called Richard Pearl, This report was called A Clean Break, A New Strategy for Securing the Realm, securing the realm being Israel. And Richard Pearl, of course, was very much involved in American politics and had a very significant role in the Pentagon at the time of 9-11. In this Clean Break document, he called for an invasion of Iraq to remove Saddam Hussein and to create circumstances in which there was inter-Arab conflict 
the document said it would be good to have every kind of inter-Arab conflict for the benefit of Israel. He mentioned Syria, he mentioned Iran, and so on. Then a year later, after this document was produced for Netanyahu, Richard Pearl, same man, another group of ultra-Zionists in the United States, created an organization called the Project for the New American Century. This was co-founded by two ultra-Zionists called Bill Crystal and Robert Kagan. And in this organization were Dick Cheney, who would be the de facto president on 9-11, um, Donald Rumsfeld, who would be the defense secretary on 9-11, Paul Wolfowitz, who would be his deputy, big ultra-Zionist Wolfowitz, and an ultra-Zionist called Dov Zakheim, who would be the comptroller at the time of 9-11 of the Pentagon in charge of the entire Pentagon budget. Also, there was Richard Pearl in that organization, Clean Break Pearl, and also people like John Bolton, who right up to recently, when he was fired by Trump, has been pushing for you know attacks on countries like Iran. In 1998, this same group of people wrote to the then President Bill Clinton and demanded that Saddam Hussein be removed as leader of Iraq because of weapons of mass destruction. Remember, that's 1998. Then in 2000, the September 2000, this organization produced a document, and it called for regime changes using American forces in Iraq, Libya, Syria, Lebanon, Iran, North Korea, China, leading to regime change in China, and some other countries. And the document said that American forces should fight and decisively win multiple simultaneous major theater wars. And they said that this process of transformation, this series of regime changes that I've just described, would be slow unless America had a new Pearl Harbor to justify the massive increases in military spending and to justify the attacks on these countries. And the document's wording said this, the process of transformation, this regime change list, is likely to be a long one, absent some catastrophic and catalyzing event like a new Pearl Harbor. Twelve months to the month, after that document was published, and nine months after the people that wrote it came to power with Bush, America had what Bush called at the time the Pearl Harbor of the 21st century, 9-11. Mm -hmm. Then in 2007, General Wesley Clark, former Supreme Allied Commander in, of NATO, told a television show called Democracy Now!, an alternative television show, but days after 9-11, he went to the Pentagon, he met Rumsfeld, he met Wolfowitz, and then he went downstairs and met a general friend of his on the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the uniform level of command in the Pentagon. And he said this general said to him, we're going to invade Iraq. Now, remember, this is days after 9-11. And Clark said, I, I said to him, what are we going to invade Iraq for? Is there a connection to 9-11? General said, not that we know of, but we're going to invade Iraq, come down from upstairs. So Clark says he goes away and he comes back 
some weeks later, by which time the United States military is in Afghanistan, he sees the same general and he says to the general, um, why aren't we invaded Iraq? What we're going to invade Iraq. And the general said to him, well, it's worse than that, sir. He said, uh, we've just had this from upstairs, Rumfeld's office. We're going to attack seven countries in five years. And he listed the countries and they were all the countries listed by the project for the new American century in September 2000. Then you have the New York Times reporting just after 9-11, that the Pentagon Policy Board, which was full of these same people, had met on September 19th and 20th, 2001, to plot the removal of Saddam Hussein. And yet we were told that the decision to remove Saddam Hussein was taken much later and, and that could have been called off right up to the invasion in 2003 uh, had Saddam got rid of weapons of mass destruction, which he actually didn't have. And one other thing in this sequence, too, immediately after 9-11, immediately after the attacks, I mean, on the morning of the attacks, straight after them, a man called Ehud Barak, who had been prime minister of Israel right up to the uh, early months of 2001 and was a former head of Israeli military intelligence, went on the BBC. I emphasize this is immediately after the attacks, when other people are running around saying, what happened, what happened, who did it? And he told the BBC, basically, that the likely culprit was Osama bin Laden and was a need to invade Afghanistan, um, which, of course, is exactly what happened. And when you look at the invasion of Afghanistan, there's no way that that wasn't orchestrated and ready, given the time involved before 9-11 happened, just as the Patriot Act, which was introduced deleting basic freedoms in America, uh, justified by the 9-11 attacks, was clearly written before the attacks, given how quickly it came out. And the man who wrote that, a man called Michael Shertoff, an ultra, ultra Zionist, was the head of the criminal division of the Justice Department who headed the entire criminal investigation into 9-11, actually non-investigation. Mm -hmm. Then you have the 9-11 Commission, which was, if you remember, you've just had these extraordinarily horrific attacks on the United States, and yet Bush and Cheney were doing everything they could not to have an official investigation into it. And when public opinion pressed them on this and forced them to have an inquiry, the first head they offered was Henry Kissinger, hmm. who has been an operative in this Sabatier and Frankist cult all his adult life. And when, you know, the public, to say the least, did not find that credible and demanded that Kissinger reveal his clients in his notorious Kissinger Associates operation, he stood down because to, you know, reveal his clients would have opened a can of worms that would have, you know, the lid would have not landed till it reached Mars, if the truth about the people he was involved in came out. And then plan B of Bush Cheney, i.e. Cheney and those who control Cheney, Bush was just what he's told. Plan B was to 
put a guy in charge called Thomas Keane as chairman, a man who later said that the 9-11 Commission had been set up to fail, and to put into place the man who really ran the entire show as executive director, and that was a guy called Philip Zelico, an ultra, ultra Zionist. And on top of this, you know, as I've been talking about this, and people have been reading the book, you know, people that have followed this might know what I'm about to say, but the vast, vast, overwhelming majority will not know that in the year 2001, 200 Israelis, mostly posing as art students, were arrested on suspicion of running a spy ring across America. Mm-hmm. And this spy ring, there was a 140 were arrested before 9-11 and 60 afterwards. And what appears to have been the center of this spy ring was in Florida at a place called Hollywood. It just happened to be that that was a major center of operation for the many of the 19 alleged hijackers on 9-11, including Mohammed Attar. You know, they, they were even in streets next to each other, some of them, these uh, Israeli people in the spy ring and people at Attar. Mm-hmm. And another center point for this spy ring was New Jersey, which was another center of operation for these alleged hijackers. And talking of New Jersey, on, on the morning of 9-11, a lady looked out of her window from a apartment block and saw what she said were five men of Middle Eastern appearance. This is why at the time when only the first tower, the North Tower, was burning and they were filming it and they were whooping and high-fiving and laughing in celebration. And as a result of that, they became known as the Dancing Israelis. And two of them turned out to be known Mossad operatives. And the lady reported them to the police and the police got the FBI involved, and they were arrested, and they were kept for 71 days until the ultra-Zionist Michael Shertoff, in charge of the whole criminal investigation, let them go, as he let go all those who were being questioned for being part of this Israeli spy ring. As I show in the book, many of these people arrested and questioned in this spy ring were military and military intelligence operatives from Israel, some of them with expertise in explosives and computers, which was fundamentally part of how 9-11 was pulled off, as I show in the book. Then you have the after 9-11, Shertoff could block the criminal investigation, but they had a problem with the families, the loved ones of those who died on, the, on 9-11, because they might want their day in court. So to avoid this, what happened was they set up this compensation fund to give money to the loved ones of the victims of 9-11 on the agreement to receive the money that they would not take civil action and thus have their day in court. Well, the man who oversaw that victim compensation fund was an ultra-Zionist lawyer called Kenneth Feinberg. And Feinberg actually was also the special master for executive compensation who decided who got bailout money after the financial crash of 2008. Hmm. 
by the way, taxpayer bailout money. Now, the problem they had then was that nearly a 100 families who'd lost loved ones on 9-11, they refused to take the compensation and they wanted their day in court. They wanted civil litigation. They wanted to have in court what actually happened and have the evidence shown. The man who was put in charge of the civil litigation was an ultra-Zionist judge called Judge Alvin Hellerstein, who even according to the mainstream media ran a, quote, war of attrition against the families to stop any of them getting to court. And the last family to give up was in uh, 2011 when the New York Times reported that a decision by Hellerstein in relation to the case had just made it impossible for the family to continue and the last family stopped their litigation. So none of it got to court. Then you take into account that the rubble and the debris from the Twin Towers and also Building 7, the third building to fall on 9-11 at 5.20 in the afternoon, which was not hit by a plane, that had enormous potential, fundamental potential, for experts to go in and see the evidence of what brought the towers down. Instead of that, under, again, the overall control of Michael Shertoff, um, that rubble and debris and steel, what was left of it, was taken by an ultra-Zionist company to New Jersey scrapyards. The New Jersey scrapyards were owned by ultra-Zionists, and it was then cut up immediately and put on boats to Asia to be smelted. And in the book, I quote an extraordinary report by the New York Times of the scene at these scrapyards when experts engineering in all the skills you need to establish what actually brought the towers down, that they were at the scrapyards and the grabbers were coming down and were grabbing the, you know, the steel, the debris and moving it as they were preparing it for shipment. And the New York Times article describes how these experts were running into the rubble and the piles of debris when the digger moved away, desperately looking for anything that would be useful in establishing how the buildings came down. And then as the grabber came back, uh, basically running for their life away from the rubble so they didn't get hit by it. Now, if you can describe a scene more absolutely contemptuous of those who died on 9-11 and their loved ones left behind, then I'd really like to hear it because I can't think of one. <laughs> and then you look at those that were the company that was running the security at Boston Logan Airport and at Newark, New Jersey. And it was a subsidiary of a company called ICTS that was set up and run by Israeli Mossad and domestic intelligence Shin Bet agents that was overseeing the security at those airports. What's more, in 1987, a company that was run again by 
Mossad and military intelligence agents from Israel was bidding, it's called Atwell Security, and it was bidding for the contract to take over the security of the Twin Towers. Atwell was a, a subsidiary, a company run by a guy called Shawl and Eisenberg, who was a long, long operative in um, covert operations with Israeli Mossad and Israeli military and military intelligence. They got the contract from the ultra-Zionist controlled New York Port Authority to take control of the security at the Twin Towers. But they lost the contract when it was revealed that the head of the company was actually a former intelligence operative in Israel who had a very dodgy background in terms of some of the things he did while being a central figure in Israeli intelligence. But then, after the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center, the ultra-Zionist still, and right the way through to 9-11 and beyond controlled New York Port Authority, decided that they were going to revamp the security at the World Trade Center as a result of that bombing. And they gave the contract to an ultra-Zionist company called Kroll Inc., which was running the security right from then and across 9-11. Also in 1983, an ultra-Zionist called Morris Greenberg, who ran this insurance giant, AIG, he bought into Kroll Inc. in 1993 and became a partner. And this is the same Morris Greenberg who secured the insurance for Larry Silverstein, the ultra-Zionist who bought the lease on the World Trade Center just before 9-11, weeks before, and increased the security in the case of a terrorist attack on those towers. And Morris Greenberg sorted out the terrorist insurance for Silverstein, but then sold it on, reinsured it, with 24 other companies who actually took the hit and not Greenberg. Mm. Silverstein ended up, and a guy called Frank Lowy was involved as well, the, uh, the guy of Westfield Moles. Silverstein, his personal investment into buying the lease and the first down payments on the lease of the Twin Towers was $14 million. His insurance payout as a result of the attacks was $4.56 billion. Hmm. It also turns out that Silverstein was a close friend of Benjamin Netanyahu. They used to talk on the phone every Sunday. This has come from sources like the Haaretz newspaper in Israel. So, you know, wherever you look, Greg, and I'm only even now scanning the surface, wherever you look, it is impossible not to see that this ultra-Zionist network, which I say is ultimately controlled by this death cult, it's impossible to deny that they were not centrally involved in the attacks of 9-11. And as a result of the 9-11, they got all the things that they wanted in terms of involvement, uh, American involvement in the Middle East and, and all the wars and regime changes that have followed. Right. Right, man, that is quite a breakdown. There are so many moving parts. You're really great at laying them out clearly. And 
as you say, we can see how these philosophically aligned people are in every key position. It's very suspicious. And as we're tying this all together and wrapping it up, and if we're trying to end on a positive note, I know that at our core, we're all infinite awareness having a human experience, but does that mean our only option here is to acquiesce? Is this too big to overcome? Is this a spiritual battle beyond our pay grade? Well, I don't like using the word battle because that's what they want us to do, battle. But it is a, a situation where we have to decide which state of consciousness prevails in terms of the way the world is that we live in. I mean, you know, we get into the nature of the world itself. Uh, I mean, it's nothing like we think we're experiencing for a start. What they've done, because this death cult understands how this reality works. It understands who we really are, right? It understands what the body is. And thus, it's part of the occult. Now, the word occult simply means hidden. Just because something is occult knowledge doesn't mean it's evil. It means it's knowledge that's hidden. And we go back to the notebook and the camera and the microphone. This occult hidden knowledge can be used for good and it can be used for psychopathic evil. What this death cult has done is hijack this knowledge for itself and basically keep it out of the public arena where the population, the target population, does not have access to it. And what it wants the public to believe, which is what materialist science is all about, which is all the, a, a death cult creation, is that we are our bodies. We are our name, we are our race, we are our religion, we are our culture, we are our life story. Because you're isolating self-identity into a, a very small bubble of perceived self. And that is basically the world of the five senses, which is what the body in our experience reality, conscious reality, operates in. And the world of the five senses is a tiny, tiny, narrow band of not only possibility and reality, it's a tiny band of who we are. These names and life stories and races and cultures, sexualities, they're not who we are. They're what we're experiencing. That's all. And who we are is the consciousness, the awareness that's experiencing them. What this death cult has done is manipulate human perception, which is done by control of the education system. And, you know, control of the education system means you can indoctrinate children to believe the world's going to end, for instance. You can manipulate people to believe that they are what they're experiencing, and that is who we are. You're born by accident. You have a few years of conscious reality called a human life, and then you die and basically cease to exist. Uh, well, what that creates is a very meaningless feeling about life itself, really, in human life. It's just a cosmic accident, life's a bitch, and then you die. And it also limits your sense of self and your sense of potential. 
because you're self-identifying with a tiny, tiny smear of possibility. But when you realize the true I is consciousness, and that consciousness can be the size of a pea or it can be infinite in its expression, you realize that your power to change events and change your own life is limited only by your perception of the possibility to do that. And so when people start to awaken to the I beyond the five sense me, they start to realize that their life becomes more and more synchronistic. More and more coincidences start to happen, which put things on a plate to them almost without effort that weren't happening before. Because as I explain in the books in, in some detail, our perception of self becomes our experience of reality. If you have a perception of self that you are little me, I have no power, why is it that those people live little me powerless lives? Whereas others live much more expansive lives and uh, things happen to them that don't happen to other people. It doesn't mean that they're better than anyone else. It means they're coming from a totally different level of perception of possibility and perception of self-identity. For instance, I'm, I come from the self-identity that I am infinite awareness having an experience. I don't come from the, the self-identity that I am David Icke, born in Leicester, England in 1952. That's my experience. It's not me. I am the consciousness having that experience. And when you come from that perspective, amazing things start to happen to you, not least insights that you, you didn't have before. Because as you expand your sense of self-identity, your consciousness subsequently expands and your perceptions uh, are start to be formed by greater and greater expansions of consciousness instead of just the five senses. And so you see things you couldn't see before. You see connections that other people don't see, not because you're better than them, but because you're coming from another level of awareness, which you've allowed yourself to become. And that's the point. That's the word allowed yourself to become. Because if you believe only in five cents me, then first of all, you are limited by that perception in what you can create, because that's the world of limitation. That's the world of I can't. But also, and this is the key with the death cult, if vast numbers of people are self-identifying the I with the body, and its race, and its sexuality, and its life story, and its culture, the potential for divide and ruling the target population is infinite. And um, what you're seeing, Greg, now is Marxism changing. The old Marxism was classically to play the haves off against the have-nots, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie and all that stuff. What they're doing with this Marxism is they are creating the group conflict between self-identities and between races 
And therefore, they have far more groups to play off against each other than the old have-have-nots version of Marxism. And this explains why, because now, of course, just quickly, you're seeing conflict between feminists and transgender people, transgender activists, not transgender people. And so these self-identities are subdividing and subdividing. This is why this LGBT list of letters is getting longer and longer and longer. Because people are subdividing into greater and greater minutiae of self-identity. And therefore, the potential for conflict becomes fantastic. But something else comes from this. When you had the old Marxism of haves against have-nots, the poor and deprived were played off against the what we would now call the billionaires. But under self-identity group, conflict Marxism, it doesn't matter if you're a billionaire or a pauper, what matters is, do you support my particular self-identity? And therefore, you've got this bizarre alliance now between social justice warriors and billionaire oligarchs from Silicon Valley and people like George Soros. Because as long as the billionaires of Silicon Valley that control the corporations of Silicon Valley and the communications of Silicon Valley and your George Soros's support and fund your self-identity groups, they're one of you. And you have, therefore, a man in George Soros who has said publicly my job is to make money. I do not look at the social consequences of what I do. <laughs> he is funding social justice warrior groups. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they're taking his money. And if you expose him, they attack you. Right. You can see this extraordinary psychological manipulation that's going on. And. If you're not streetwise to it and how it works and where it wants to take the world, then you're babes in arms, lambs to the slaughter. Because what these kids are doing and the adults that are driving it in terms of human-caused global warming, and it's the hoax of it, is that they are being manipulated out of fear of the end of the world they're being manipulated into demanding the deletion of their own freedoms. And not only that, the deletion of everyone else's freedoms. As I said on the Internet this week, it's not the world that's going to end, kids. It's your freedom that's going to end. That's what this is really all about. Man, well... Cheers to that. I think that's a pretty good thing to leave people with. These are troubled times that require us to stay sharp and avoid the traps that they set. And also, just very quickly, Greg, and also going into what we've just been talking about, they don't work so hard to keep us in a minutiae of consciousness and self-identity because it's a bit of fun. They do it because it's fundamental to them achieving their end. And if people would just shift their self-identity from I am my labels, as I call them, 
to I am the consciousness having the experience of those labels, an infinite eternal consciousness that is is in a, a journey of exploring forever, forever, and this is just a tiny experience that we're having, that very shift in perception of the I would change the world because of all that would come from it. Yes, I guess to some extent, freedom is a state of mind. Mm. Well, <laughs> very great talking to you today. I mean, the trigger is the book. DavidIke.com is the website. So much content there. I'm sure you have another project in the works already. Maybe you could give us a preview before we really call it in. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to start another book in uh, uh, just about maybe about three, three weeks, which will be absolutely about solutions and consciousness and, and becoming the true I. So that will be out next year. And one other thing we're about to uh, launch is a media channel. because we're all faced with the censorship. We're launching a, a media channel through davidike.com, maybe in, in, the, in the next three weeks or so. And we've already got a phenomenal amount of content, and it's cutting-edge content in all these different areas. People that are suppressed and censored elsewhere will be on this channel. So that's, you know, very, very exciting for people like me because it's going to give a platform to the cutting edge of knowledge across all these different subjects, which are being increasingly curtailed on the, uh, by, by the Silicon Valley corporations. Right on. That sounds great. I mean, this is a, a revival of a project that was attempted before, right? Well, it was attempted before, and that was a massive learning process because what came through the door in terms of volunteers were some lovely, wonderful people and a lot of basically uh, toxic people who set out to destroy it, basically, or to use it for their own ends. So that was a massive learning experience. That is uh, very different to what we are uh, doing this time, which is a very small-knit group of people that have absolutely the right intent and integrity to, uh, to make this work. It will work. It's got to work because this censorship through Silicon Valley is not something that has reached its peak. It's just where it is now. And this death cult runs Silicon Valley. And so the goal eventually is to ensure that people anywhere only see and hear what the death cult wants them to see and hear. And that takes us straight into the, straight into the pages of 1984, of course, which is exactly um, where we're heading. But or well underestimated, as you would expect, <laughs> and underestimated where it was going because in those days he didn't understand the scale of technology that was going to be available. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Man, well, you know, we live and learn. You got noble goals and you're getting more done before breakfast than I do all day. So very awesome. You are such a workhorse and a living legend in this quest for truth, man. I appreciate everything you do. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me today and keep fighting the good fight. Real pleasure, Greg. I tell you what, the day I leave this world will be a few seconds after I've written my last words, I tell you, because mm. I am, um, I ain't going anywhere. And <laughs> I'm in this for the long haul. And, you know, it's in, in many ways, it's only just begun. Well, I look forward to following you right up to the last word. <laughs> it's got to be a long time from now, Greg, I'll tell you that. <laughs> 
Indeed. All right, man. Well, have a good one. You too, mate. Thanks. Always a pleasure. The power of Christ compels you people. David Ike, the man, the myth, the legend, back so soon. And he does not disappoint. He set out to write the biggest, fullest, most complete book on 9-11 and its implications. And I think he nailed it. Like I said, I was a little conflicted because I wanted to have David back. Of course, I'm going to take that opportunity. But to talk about 9-11 seemed like small potatoes compared to archonic shapeshifters in the Saturn moon matrix. But when I got into the book, I thought, okay, well, this Sabbatean Frankist death cult is definitely interesting. This should be the focus. And we all know David can talk for a long time, so I wanted to make sure that we didn't recap the events of that day too much, because we know a lot of that stuff already. So I wanted to dive right into the deep end of the pool, and when it comes to the network responsible, that's where the rubber meets the road. And I did think there was a lot more work that could be done on that, for sure, and he did it. David's got a great grasp on the people involved and the philosophical foundation that put these events in motion, but I had not heard that Sabbatean Frankist term before. I've heard of Babylonian banking brotherhoods, cults of Mithras, neo-pagan occultists, Luciferian networks, and honestly, sometimes I think the conspiracy world gets a bit hung up on rebranding the bad guys, but I do like death cults covers a lot of ground. It can incorporate most other groups. It implies some occult leanings without a loaded term like Satanist. And it isn't attached to any particular era of time. Clearly, they like death and destruction, so I'm good with that term. Another thing I would say about the rebranding the bad guys issue is that no matter which label we put on them, the commonality is always, well, they are masters of infiltration and pitting two sides against each other. And if that's the case, maybe be a bit more flexible with the naming and the labels because chances are you found a branch and maybe not the true trunk of that tree, you know? Remember when we last talked to Walter Bosley about Napoleon in the second hour, we talked about that book, The 1,000-Year Conspiracy, and it talked about a group that was Prussian, essentially a Germanic tribe that had the same strategy and was quite successful, which is another factor. These types of strategies aren't limited to just one group. Other opposition groups could have seen their effectiveness and adopted the model. And all this is just to say that it's good to not get too hung up on that tendency to look for a single answer. Nobody's got the true monopoly on evil, let me tell you. But you don't even need the terms and the labels when David goes all the way up the pyramid and all the way back to the planning stages and just gives the people's names. Quite impressive. And I also have to thank David for really being a man of his word. How many times have we had some big names come on? Sometimes catering to their schedule pretty hard, wanting to talk about one topic specifically or only wanting to do one hour and promising they would come back for a full show, and then my emails don't get answered. I think sometimes a person will make that calculation. Oh, I already presented to that audience. Why do it again? Well, <laughs> because you said you would, and even on air sometimes. But let's just tell it like it is. When you're at the level of a David Icke, the ball is 100% in your court. And I think that shows a lot of character and integrity 
that he came back so soon. And I couldn't imagine a 9-11 book being much better. Of course, I love Dr. Judy Woods, Where Did the Towers Go? But its focus is so narrow that I have a hard time giving it the crown of 9-11 books. I think the trigger is the best all around, and Judy Wood is the best for that specific technology that took down the Twin Towers, and S.K. Bain's The Most Dangerous Game is probably the best for the occult side of the whole ritual. You take these three books, and you hold them up against something like the official 9-11 investigation, and it's laughable. These authors are people on the outside, just doing the best they can with limited information. I'm really in awe of what they put together, but the 9-11 Commission has a lot more access and a lot more resources, and they basically come up with nothing. I don't have to tell you guys this, I know. But when I run into someone who still drinks that 9-11 Kool-Aid, I'm definitely thrown off a little bit, because I so casually brush past it as an obvious false flag to get us into an endless war in the Middle East, coordinated in part by weapons manufacturers. Obviously it goes deeper, but even just painting with the broadest of strokes, it should be easy to see how this was a money-making operation for Cheney and Halliburton and Blackwater and the oil companies and now pretty clearly the tech companies and all the rest of them. I think it's weird to not see that. And the more you learn about war and military conflict, it's actually hard to find a major war that wasn't started with some sort of false flag. I'm honestly not kidding. It's always this scenario of the biggest bully on the global playground who goes up to the kid they want to fight and says, hey, he hit me first, you all saw it, and then beats that kid into oblivion. You know, I still haven't been able to get Richard Dolan to answer my interview requests. Maybe you guys could help, I don't know. But he did a full series specifically on the historic use of false flags. It is the only reason I've ever signed up for Gaia TV, and it was excellent. And it all makes so much sense because nobody wants this kind of conflict except the capstone cabals of the world. Nobody wants to invoke the wrath of the military-industrial complex. It's suicide. But these guys are up in their ivory towers, foaming at the mouth for someone to kill, and they just pace back and forth saying, Give me a reason. Give me one fucking reason, motherfucker. And then if nobody does, they'll just stage it. Or they'll just force more pressure until it has to happen. You'll see a news story that says, hey, Iran shot down one of our drones. Well, what's your drone doing over there? Stop antagonizing them. It's not like they shot down this military drone in Alabama. You know what I mean? So it's just frustrating to get in arguments about something that seems so obvious. You want to debate that Silicon Valley gets its ideas from demons or that alchemical transmutation is a suppressed science? Sure. But false flags? It's so entry-level. We cannot keep getting fooled by such an obvious ruse. I beg your pardon? Your ruse. Your cunning attempt to trick me. <laughs> you like that? Clerks and David Icke in a single podcast. Who else is going to give you that? <laughs> anyway, in higher side news, I would say get your THC grinders while you still can. When they are gone, they are gone. Probably the coolest and highest quality merchandise I have ever had but they are the one item in the store that I have to ship out myself, and I'm looking to get that off my plate. I don't even have the room to store these things. There's not a ton left, but I just want to knock it out, so I figured I'd mention it here. 
I guess, you know, I also sell t-shirts too, and one of them is the Arconic Saturn Moon Matrix design, coincidentally, but, you know, check it all out at thehiresidechats.com, which is also where you can become a Plus member to get the second half of all these here podcasts and a very robust archive of awesome stuff. The growing pains are over with the new site. I think 98% of people are all converted and happy, and it is better for the long haul. Any change is always just to make this whole machine more convenient and higher quality for you. So I made the reinvestment. And if you like what I do, I could use your subscription right now. I don't say that a whole lot, but I do have a little bit of burnout. I've just been so stressed and frustrated and exhausted by the last couple of months that it would really help to see a little uptick. Clearly, we lost a couple of members out of their frustration, but I've tried to make everybody happy, and really, in the grand scheme of things, it's just 60 shaky days. We will overcome, but, you know, sign up, and if you want to cancel in a few months, that's fine. You don't have to be a Plus member forever, but jump in, download the shows you want, and get out. If you were just a Plus member to the end of the year, that would mean a whole lot. So think about it. If you're curious about the first hour in today's show, well, we talked about Trump and his relationship with the death cult, David's breakdown of the Democratic presidential nominees that are still running, and I asked David to weigh in on Andrew Yang and the freedom dividend and universal basic income. And I agree with everything David had to say about that. I understand his points. Equality of outcome versus equality of opportunity. Yes, I've listened to Jordan Peterson. But the flip side of we'll shut off your universal basic income if you step out of line would be anyone who commits a mugging or a crime out of poverty or necessity, well, those would go away as well. People have nothing to lose now, and that is not a good place for people to be. We've all heard stories of people who commit crimes to go to jail. People rob others at gunpoint for the $60 in their wallets. With a universal basic income of $1,000 a month, nobody is sleeping in tents on the street. Nobody risks that check over something stupid. And again, automation is coming either way. And you can make a conscious choice to accept that check but not depend on it. I don't need it. I don't personally particularly want it for myself, but I just know too many people who are on a razor's edge financially which has effects on their mood and their stress and their health and their relationships. And a lot of people I know who could use it, they're not trying to be controversial anyway. They don't have the time or the energy. But David brought up the candidates, so I thought it would be fun to ask him about Andrew Yang and get him to speak on some things that I really hadn't heard him talk about before. That was the point. Make the Plus Show something unique. And like everything, there is an altruistic and idealistic expression of an idea, and then there's the tyrannical twist from the nefarious few when it's actually implemented. And this is why we can't have nice things, guys. But what are you going to do but live your life and adjust accordingly? It's all a big circus anyway. And I am really glad we also got to fit in a little talk with David about the climate change agenda, because he talks about it so well clearly lays out the motivations. And in fact, that's probably the best way to end this show is with our song that also talks about the same theme. Big thanks to Tony Party for making all our dreams come true. 
Of course, THC cover songs are another reason to sign up for Plus, because they're all free downloads for Plus people. It's the Plus subscriptions that allow me to purchase high-quality cover songs that I've written the lyrics to, and so thus, it's Plus people who get them back in return. And with that, I'm going to get out of here. But big thanks to David Icke and big thanks to you guys. I saw recently that there are now over 750,000 podcasts and you're still listening to me. So I can't thank you enough, honestly, really. It's been my dream come true and I just want to not take it for granted and keep working hard to give you high quality shows. So hopefully you think I've done my part. But it is your move, satanic death cult of Sabatine Frankists. Your fucking. Maybe you'll see. Goddamn, this plan. No fan spraying on me. Cronies, don't you know they control? the sun.